Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for our Through the Bible groups. Lord, we pray that they'll enjoy the study tonight and then the discussion will be rich and beneficial. And Lord, we just pray for the power of your spirit tonight, Lord, as we open up our hearts to the truths of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the early chapters of Acts, we find divine mathematics at work. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, we're told, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, Luke tells us, the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. God adds in chapter 2. He multiplies in chapter 6. And God never divides. Sadly, it's man that does that. But in Acts chapter 5, God does do some divine subtraction. Two pastors were once chit-chatting with each other about their respective churches. When one of the pastors, he asked his buddy, he said, Have you had any additions to your church? His friend replied, No, but we have had some blessed subtractions. Well, tonight we've got a killer of a passage. A real drop-dead Bible study. It's a knockout. As new believers, Ananias and Sapphira were just dying to get into the Bible. Tonight we're going to discover just how they did it. Well, let's pick it up where we left off last time, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Some folks claim the early church practiced a form of communism. Not true. Communism is a forced system of sharing and spreading the wealth. What existed in Acts was communism. It was a voluntary sharing. You see, here's the difference between communism and Christianity. Communism says, what's yours is mine. Christianity says, what's mine is yours. Verse 33 tells us, And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And I love this description. Here's life in the early church. Great power and great grace. But great power and great grace are sustained by great purity. Hypocrisy can undermine God's blessings as we're about to see. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. You know, the church now had numbered over 5,000 people. Explosive growth had taken place in a short period of time. Many of the new converts were Jewish pilgrims who'd come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost They had no place to stay. They had nothing to eat, and yet they need to remain in the city at least for a few weeks in order to get grounded in their newfound faith. A few of the wealthier believers were liquidating assets in order to finance these extended stays. And one such man was named Joseph. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, A Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. You know, the Old Testament law prohibited the tribe of Levi from owning land. Their priority was the temple service. 
But apparently the law had been unable to tame the heart of Barnabas. He insisted on ownership. But what the law failed to do, the law of Jesus accomplished. When Jesus filled his heart, the contents of his wallet were not near as important. The love of Jesus turns the greedy into givers. It turns misers into philanthropists. Here Barnabas bows at the apostles' feet. Later, he's going to become one. Chapter 5 begins. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. Here is the all-American couple living in Jerusalem. In high school, Ananias was captain of the football team. Sapphira was the homecoming queen. Now they drive to church in a nice new Mercedes. They dress in designer jeans. They live out on a golf course in the suburbs. They even had a TBG group in their home. Ananias was a deacon. This storybook couple was the epitome of respectability, the poster child for a conservative evangelical success. And they even dabbled in real estate. This is what made them so uneasy. You see, the folks at the church, they had gotten serious about following Jesus, even to the point of it lightening their wallet. Well, Mr. and Mrs. Country Club, they feel threatened. What happened to a little moderation? Believers were selling off possessions and pooling their resources. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, they liked playing at religion. But this was looking like real giving, serious commitment. They didn't like the encroachment on their lifestyle. And here was their quandary. They weren't about to relinquish control of their property. They were too materialistic for that. But they, weren't, they also didn't want to appear stingy or materialistic. And you see, for this couple, image was everything. They just couldn't tolerate looking unspiritual. And so here's what they did, verse 2. They sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now realize, God never required selling off property and giving it to the church. This all was strictly voluntary. Neither did God tell Ananias to give all the proceeds from the sale of his property. I mean, he could have donated a portion and just said so. It didn't have to be all. Ananias' sin was to give part, then claim to give all. He lied. And he gets busted. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. You see, Ananias' giving was more to impress people than to please God. It was about image, not integrity. Apparently, God could have tolerated their stinginess and their materialism, but what he couldn't allow to gain a foothold in the early church was their hypocrisy. Here were two people more concerned with looking good than being real. It was style over substance, and sadly... I think that's the blight of our modern church today. Well, Peter grills Ananias in verse 4. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now notice in verse 3, Peter tells Ananias that he had lied to the Holy Spirit. But in verse 4, he says that Ananias has lied to God. Obviously, the Holy Spirit must be God. 
Here's one of the many biblical proof texts for the deity of the Holy Spirit. Well, then Ananias, hearing these words, he fell down, boom, and he breathed his last. Here is a genuine case of being slain in the Spirit, and I doubt if any of us would want to emulate the experience. God struck Ananias, and in his final fatal gasp, he died. And so great fear came upon all those who heard these things, I'm sure. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. You know, in ancient Israel, corpses were disposed of quickly. No need to risk a stench or disease. They didn't even take time to notify the near of kin. You know, I mentioned great grace and great power, that these were cornerstones of the early church. But there was one more, great fear. Church was serious business. Hey, hypocrites who went to church, they went home either repentant or in a body bag. Play at religion, be a poser, claim to be more than you really be, and God will take an issue with your attitude. The neighborhood also respected this high standard. You know, Satan is sneaky. In Acts chapter 4, he tries to silence the church through threats and intimidation. But remember what they did. They dropped to their knees and they prayed for boldness and God granted it. Now in chapter 5, though Satan shifts his method, he tries a different approach. Intimidation failed, so here he tries contamination. Satan tries to water down their faith, dilute their commitment. He infiltrates the church with hypocrisy. You know, if he can't beat us, he'll join us. But Peter looked right through Ananias and he challenged him, Why has Satan filled your heart? Peter sees that Satan is behind Ananias' deception. You know, today, weak-kneed saints will question God's severity here. Was it really necessary to deal so harshly with Ananias? I mean, if God used the same standards today, we'd sing that chorus all to Jesus, I surrender, and people all over the congregation would start dropping like flies. Wages Funeral Home would have to bring a truck over to haul off the bodies. See, here's what's going on in the Bible. Whenever God launches a new movement, He uses a flurry of miracles to authenticate that movement. In Acts, it was the rushing wind and the flames of fire and the healing of the lame man. But then God deals harshly in order to preserve the movement's integrity. We saw this when God brought Israel into the promised land. Remember, He started out with a flurry of miracles. The crossing of the Jordan, the conquest of Jericho, but then the next battle, Ai, this was where the sin of Achan cost them a devastating defeat. And God had to judge Achan and rid the camp of hidden sin. This is the pattern in Acts. Here he has to, on the heels of the miracles, he wants to authenticate the work through the miracles, but then he wants to preserve its integrity by flushing out the hidden sin. God wanted future generations of believers to understand the priority He places on purity and integrity. Spiritual pride, deceit, this kind of duplicity, this two-faced spirituality are sins that will short-circuit God's work. Notice verse 7. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. She'd probably been shopping at the mall. It took her about three hours. But she's in on the duplicity. Verse 2 says that she was a co-conspirator. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And remember, she doesn't know what's just happened. So she said, yes, for so much. 
And then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Notice though her sin. She tested the Spirit of the Lord. She challenged God's omniscience and discernment. The fact that she lied and thought she could get away with it was a slap in the face of the Holy Spirit. You can't hide the truth from God. I read of a restaurant in New York City that built its business on hypocrisy. You know, husbands bring wives to this restaurant. Boyfriends bring girlfriends. Couples are seated and they're handed a menu. But what the girl doesn't know is that the prices in her menu are triple the cost of those in the man's menu. So when he leans in and says, honey, just order whatever you want, she ends up deceptively impressed And yet this can be dangerous when she finds out the truth. It can backfire. Well, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, it did backfire. God knew from the very start what was up. He saw their motive. Cover-ups don't work with God. Hey, they should have come clean beforehand. Verse 10. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out. Buried her by her husband. The golden couple are buried in adjacent plots. And so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch there in the temple. After Ananias and Sapphira, the church was on its best behavior. Great fear came upon all those who were meeting. And yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Apparently, this whole episode slowed down the church's growth rate. (laughs) But it certainly intensified the respect they received from the community. Grace was still shown, but people realized that God takes faith seriously. You know, the church in all eras needs to be careful about dumbing down the standards of holiness. Guys, when we lower the bar... We lose the public's respect, and we also displease the Lord. In every church, there needs to be great grace, but also great fear. And it didn't take long for the church to begin to grow again. We're told, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Notice the law of the vineyard applies to churches just as it does to grapes. You know, rather than more foliage, the vine dresser, he's after more fruit. And so what does he do? He prunes back the vine. He cuts off all the little sucker shoots that bleed off the valuable sap. And sometimes God does this to churches. At times, the church will accumulate people who are hanging on, people who are hypocritical or contentious or of a bitter spirit. There comes a point when God has to step in and he lops off the bad apples. Why? so that the church will grow again, so that it can bear much fruit. It's interesting that after Mr. and Mrs. Ananias dropped out, a whole new surge of folks were added. And so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. 
Not only was there a surge of people, but there was also a surge of power in this early church. You know, we learn in the book of Acts that purity and power go hand in hand. Isn't it interesting that as soon as God gets rid of sin in the camp, the camp erupts with both people and with power. Miracles occur. The sick are healed. Demoniacs are delivered. And it's interesting, this passage shows us just how far Peter has come. You remember a few months earlier, old Peter, he was sitting in the shadows. He was weeping bitterly that he had betrayed his Lord. He was afraid of being arrested. Now, though, he is so associated with the living Lord Jesus that people have connected his shadow with supernatural healing. Now, I don't believe that there was anything miraculous about Peter's shadow. But folks were healed because his shadow triggered their faith. You know, sometimes our faith needs a trigger. It needs a point of release. It needs something to to stimulate it and stir it. Faith can be very nebulous and vague until it has a focus. And this is why we practice the laying on of hands. When we pray for a sick person, we pray for somebody to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we'll lay hands on them and pray for them. Why? Because that gives you a point of release to release your faith. It gives you a trigger for your faith. Well, apparently, this was what Peter's shadow, this was the, the role that it was playing in all of this. People would stand there, and they'd situate themselves so that his shadow passed by, and it was like him laying his hands on them, and it suddenly it triggered their faith, and it caused God to respond to their faith by healing their bodies. Folks were wonderfully healed. Then verse 17 tells us, Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, And they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. Now, this was a different form of laying on of hands. You you notice that. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to all the people all the words of this life. Notice the angel defines Christianity as a life. It's more than just a set of doctrines. Christianity is a lifestyle. Christianity is a way of life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. The angel orchestrates a jailbreak. And they end up in the temple the very next morning. Notice they don't beat around the bush, do they? The angel tells them to go back into the temple, and so they're there the next, as soon as the dawn, as soon as the sun rises, they're right back into the, in the temple, preaching the gospel. They didn't beat around the bush. The angel told them to stand in the temple and preach. The next morning, they report for duty. Didn't wait. Didn't beat around the bush. Didn't procrastinate. By the way, here's a quiz for you geography buffs. What's the world's largest nation? World's largest nation. Answer? procrastination you're right hey more people live in procrastination than any other state when God gives you an order don't hesitate don't procrastinate just activate and obey but the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought Isn't that interesting? They sent down to the prison to have Peter brought up, but he's in the temple preaching the gospel, courtesy of the angel's early release program. 
But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Surprise! Verse 26, Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. This was the Sanhedrin. This was the Jewish Supreme Court, the high court of Israel. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. What a compliment that was. What a compliment to Peter and the other apostles that they had filled the city with the gospel. Hey, that's our goal. It should be to flood our county, flood our city with the good news of Jesus Christ. They also accused Peter of intending to bring this man's blood on us. Now, think about this. What a short memory they had. The high priest had forgotten his very own words when he wanted Pilate to release Barabbas. You remember what he said of Jesus? Oh, his blood be on our hands and on our children. Peter isn't going to let him forget what he asked for that day. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Now understand, later in Peter's letter, he writes these words, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, for this is the will of God. Notice Peter is no anarchist. He believed that submission to the governing authorities was a Christian virtue. In fact, if we can't submit to human government authority that we can see, then how can we tell people to submit to God's government, an authority they can't see? We all need to pay our taxes. We all need to drive the speed limit. We need to obey civil authority as long as it doesn't make demands on us that conflict with the will of God. But when that happens, suddenly we have a choice to make. As Peter puts it, will we obey man or will we obey God? And Peter says, that's no choice at all. It's always better to obey God. Hey, when the day comes when the county commission tells us that we can't share the gospel on a public sidewalk or in a county park, well, then it's time to buck the system. God has commanded us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. If God's commands conflict with a county ordinance, then so be it. Lock us up if need be. Divine decrees, though, take precedent over governmental ordinances. And Peter renews his preaching efforts before the Sanhedrin themselves. Notice verse 30. The God of our Father. They just told him not to preach anymore in Jesus' name, so what does he do? He preaches to them. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Again, what boldness. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. For we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. You know, the greater their threats, the braver Peter becomes. 
He breaks their laws before he even leaves the room. He preaches to them the gospel that they've forbidden him to preach. And when they heard this, they were furious, and they plotted to kill him. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people. And Gamaliel commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. Hey, I need to speak to you guys in private for a minute. Now, Jewish sources tell us that Rabbi Gamaliel was the preeminent scholar of his day. In fact, his contemporaries called him the beauty of the law. They say at his funeral, it was actually stated, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died in the person of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was very well respected by the Jews, both his fellow Pharisees and even their rival Sadducees. He had great stature. As a side note, according to Acts chapter 22, verse 3, one of his students was a Jew from Tarsus, a rabbi by the name of Saul. We know him as Paul. Paul was a student of Gamaliel. Well, this Gamaliel said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. Think this through now. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered. It came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished. And all who obeyed him were dispersed. Now, now we know very little about Thutis or Judas, and that's Gamaliel's point. They created a stir, but it was so short-lived. It just died out quickly. It just rose up and flamed out. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. Just like Thutis and Judas But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. If it's of man, it'll go the way of these other two guys. It'll be forgotten before you know it. But if it's of God, you can't defeat it. And why would you want to? I mean, who really wants to fight with God? Gamaliel gave the Sanhedrin some wise and some open-minded counsel. In fact, I wonder what Gamaliel would tell us today. Now, 2,000 years later, now that Christianity has transformed cultures and birthed civilizations and affected countless generations and changed millions upon millions of lives and even spread now to the four corners of the globe, I am sure he would conclude that this Jesus movement was really of God. Verse 40 And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Rather than execute the apostles, they rough them up a bit, had them flogged. It was one more attempt to try to shut them up, and you got to love their reaction. No apostolic pity parties here. So they departed from the presence of the council, 
rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Wow. Their beatings, their intimidation didn't work. It only inflamed their passion for Jesus. You know, I love how Winston Churchill once defined the word fanatic. He said, a fanatic is someone who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. That's a fanatic. And that was the apostles. I mean, how do you stop guys who interpret a beating as a blessing? You throw them in prison and they only praise God. Shame them and they take it as an honor. Try to silence them and they grow more public and more vocal. How do you stop guys like this? You can't. The disciples recalled the words of Jesus. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. How do you defeat people who live for heaven's reward? You don't. Well, chapter 6 begins. Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, remember the divine math that I mentioned at our start. God adds. God multiplies. He even subtracts. But God never divides. It's the members of the church that stir up division. You know, I've heard churches that have split. They split apart. They divided over the color of the carpet. Can you imagine? Or whether a guitar or a piano led worship. Or the location of the water cooler. Trivial stuff. Obviously, there are some issues worth fighting for. But how often have churches divided over picky, petty matters? Superficial stuff cocks us sideways. We get off track. Acts chapter 6 is the first church squabble. The church in Jerusalem had a breach over bread. The dispute erupted over whether the Greek widows were getting a fair share of the groceries. The conflict was over a minor matter, but as these situations often do, it escalated to major proportions. The word Hellenist referred to the Jews who had embraced Greek language and culture. The Hebrew purists, they resented the Hellenists. They considered them compromisers. There was a natural tension between these two groups. So when there seemed to be inequities in the distribution of the church's benevolence, the Hellenists were quick to call foul and accuse the Hebrews of discrimination. It was just an ugly, volatile situation. And it had the potential of permanently thwarting the rapid expansion and the righteous harmony of the infant church. Disaster was averted because of some wise leadership. Verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, the complaint was trivial, but the problem was far more serious. You see, the apostles were getting stretched too thin. They were being asked to do it all. They were hammering out sound doctrine, and they were teaching the people 
from house to house and in the temple. They were fighting with the Sanhedrin. They were discipling new believers. And now they're supposed to wait on tables? It was just too much. (laughs) And pastors face the same type of dilemma today. You know, everybody wants me to be there. Every time there's a meeting or a wedding or a funeral or a special event, or a member of the church heads to the hospital, or a teenager gets into trouble, or they get into a squabble with their spouse. They want the pastor to be there. Pastors, people want their email answered and their phone calls returned. Pastor, can you spare me just a few minutes? And oh yeah, we also need two quality Bible studies every week. That's just a given. Now I'm not complaining, but I will tell you, sometimes it can get to be a lot. That's why I don't even want to know the burnout rate for pastors. It's astronomical. You see, if a pastor is going to survive, he has to learn to say no and prioritize and find help and delegate. And this is what the apostles do in Acts chapter 6. They realize that they're the paper jam. They're the bottleneck in the life of the church. And if they don't get other people involved in the ministry and the waiting on the tables, they're going to hinder the work that they're trying to advance. Their their priority is clear. Notice, it is not desirable that we leave the Word of God. I hope you understand my priorities. The ministry of the Word, its study and its teaching is every pastor's top priority. You know, if I don't show up in the hospital when you're there, I'm sorry, but you'll forgive me. You know, if I don't make it to the softball game your little one's playing, or, you know, if I don't make it to the wedding or the funeral or whatever it might be, you'll forgive me. But if I don't teach you the Word of God faithfully, week in and week out, you won't forgive me, and you shouldn't. Every pastor needs to make the Word of God his top priority. You know, the Bible calls itself a fire, a food, a sword, a hammer. The Bible is God's revelation to man. Without it, we would be lost and defenseless and hopeless. Duffy Doherty was the longtime coach of the Michigan State Spartans. Once Duffy told his team, Men, when you're playing for the national championship, it's not a matter of life and death. It's more important than that. (laughs) That's a pretty sky-high priority, if you ask me. And yet, that's how every pastor should feel about teaching the Scriptures. It's even more important than life and death. It's about eternity. You know, from week to week, other needs seem more urgent than preparing another Bible study. But in God's wisdom, no other needs are more important for the health of a church than the faithful teaching of the Word. The apostles knew this. And that's why they sensed that it was time to delegate some other tasks. Verse 3, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer into the ministry of the Word. Now, remember, this whole matter was about the daily distribution. The Greek word for distribution is the word diakonos, the same word as our word deacon. That's why these seven men chosen by the church are often referred to as the first deacons. 
Note the early church had a simple leadership structure. The apostles or the elders led and fed. The deacons served. The elders took care of the spiritual needs. The deacons took care of the physical or the practical needs. The elders oversee, the deacons undergird. Also notice the spiritual qualifications given to men who are basically told to wait on tables. Notice they had to be men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. That's some pretty high qualifications. Understand the church has no menial jobs. Nothing we do is menial. Every person we serve is bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Thus, everyone should be treated with love and wisdom. That's why those who serve the people need high qualifications. You know, churches today often have the wrong focus when it comes to their church government. They're rigid in regards to their structure, whether they're led by elders or deacons or whatever. They're rigid when it comes to the structure but they're willing to compromise when it comes to the character of the men. The New Testament was just the opposite. In the New Testament, you'll find the church flexible regarding structure, but unwavering when it comes to the integrity of the leaders. Well, verse 5 records the church's reaction. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. I mean, a major schism was averted. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip. In fact, the next two chapters, Acts chapter 7 and 8, are all about Stephen and then Philip. We're going to learn more about these guys. They also chose Prochorus. Tradition tells us that he was the longtime assistant of the Apostle John. He ended up dying a martyr's death this Prochorus. They also chose Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, of which we know very little about, and then Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And this Nicholas may have been the one bad apple in the bunch. Some Bible teachers identify Nicholas with the heresy that's spoken of in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. You remember the sin of the Nicolaitans? Nicolaitan means ruler of the people. Nico means ruler. Laos means people. The Nicolaitans practiced a bullying form of leadership. They loved to lord it over the people. They loved to, to be a tyrant rather than a leader. And it could be that this Nicholas rebelled against his role as deacon. Rather than serve, he wanted to be in charge. He wanted power. He wanted authority. And so he became a tyrannical force in the church. It's just a possibility. When I get to heaven, I may have to apologize to Nicholas for saying that. That might not have been his story at all. One other point. Later, elders are going to appoint fellow elders. That's how the elders get appointed. But notice here, the deacons are selected by who? By the church. Peter says, choose out from among you. And in light of that, it's interesting that all seven deacons had Greek or Hellenistic names. The church chose servants that the perceived victims of the infraction would be able to trust. Isn't that interesting? Apparently for this church, what was most important was equity and unity. 
rather than just getting their way. Now, according to verse 6, the deacons were set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Notice the apostles' decision to prioritize, to prioritize God's word, to delegate these simpler matters, unclogged the bottleneck. It spawned a new season of growth within the church. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. This is so interesting. You know, in the first century, Israel, 8,000 priests served in the temple. 8,000. The Jewish priesthood was limited to one family, one select group, the family of Aaron. But these these priests began to notice the church, how the church conducted business. That in Christ, everyone is in on the action. You remember the Holy Spirit was poured out, not, not on just a select few, but on all of the believers. Now the ministry is even being delegated. Soon, every member is going to be a minister. Christianity teaches what's called the priesthood of every believer. That in Christ, we all have a direct connection with God. A priest, a go-between is no longer needed. Perhaps this resonated among the Jewish priests. They knew Judaism's limits. These priests also saw how the temple veil had been torn in two when Jesus died. They were there in the temple when the veil tore in two. And it was a sign that in Christ, the separation between God and man is finally over. That you, that me, that all of us can come to God personally, ourselves, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so many of the priests began to investigate these Christian claims. Verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Boy, Stephen, he's he's coming on strong. From table waiter to miracle worker. In a short time. Apparently, God rewarded Stephen's faithful service with a broader and a bolder ministry. It just illustrates the principle. Stephen was faithful in a little, and so God rewarded him with much. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, and they were disputing with Stephen. Now the freedmen were Jews whose fathers had been Roman slaves and had won their freedom. Apparently, they had rallied together and they had formed their own synagogue. For some reason, they had a beef with Stephen. We're not sure what the issues might have been. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They hired perjury. They couldn't discredit him. He spoke with wisdom and was filled with the Holy Spirit, but they hired perjurers to come in and lie against him. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. Again, the Sanhedrin, the court, Supreme Court of the Jews. And they also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. 
And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Wow. Spurgeon used to say to his Bible college students, he used to tell them, men, when you teach on heaven, let there always be a glow on your face, a gleam in your eye, and a grin on your lips. When you teach on hell, your normal face will do. Well, apparently, Stephen had a certain glow about him. You remember in Exodus chapter 34, we're told that when Moses spent time in God's presence there on top of Mount Sinai, he came down from the mountain and there was this sheen or this sparkle or this luster that, that just sort of lingered in his countenance. I like to call it the divine shine or the mo glow. Evidently, God's glory had a comparable effect on Stephen's countenance. And you know, the similarity between Moses and Stephen should have said to these Jews that rather than contradict Moses, Stephen was acting in, har- acting in harmony with him. That's what it should have said. But it didn't. They drew other conclusions. And then next time, we're going to study Stephen's testimony before the Sanhedrin. Acts chapter 7. And so there we have it. 